The big story moves to Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, there was no name that should have been greater than the name of Pharaoh. His was to be a power that was unmatched, a name that was renowned. And so there is irony all the way through the book of Exodus. Because Exodus is filled with proof of the Pharaoh's impotence, of his eternal insignificance. In fact, in two different, there are two different Pharaohs in the book of Exodus, and we don't know the names of either one of them. History can't even tell us the exact names of either one of them. But do you know whose names we do know? We know two names that would be seemingly insignificant into all of human history. Certain, certainly far less significant than the most powerful men in the world. We know the names of two Hebrew midwives, Shipra and Pua. The Hebrew people had been enslaved by the Egyptians. They had done just as God had commanded them to do. They'd been fruitful and had multiplied. And now in the land of Egypt, generations had passed since Joseph, 400 years. And there was more than a million of them living in Egypt. And so Pharaoh became concerned that they were going to rise up and, and form an alliance with his enemies. And forming an alliance with his enemies that they would come against Egypt and take down Pharaoh and take down his people. And so he assigns taskmasters over all of the Hebrews and he enslaves them into hard labor. And so he watches even in hard labor as the people of God flourish. And he becomes even more concerned that he won't be able to stop them. And so he brings the Hebrew midwives in and he commands that they would have all of the sons of the Hebrews killed at the moment of birth. There were no ultrasounds, there were nothing like that, and so they didn't know what children they would have until the day of the gender of the baby. And so you can imagine the anxiety of a pregnancy, the worry that a mother would have, the worry that a family would have, except the midwives. The scriptures say that they feared God more than Pharaoh. And fearing God more than Pharaoh, they refused to kill the Hebrew children. And so the people of God continued to multiply. And yet we have a picture of Pharaoh, the mightiest man in all of the world. And he's afraid of his own slaves. And we have these two humble servants. These two Hebrew midwives who, though in the face of the mightiest man in all of the world, show no fear at all. Their fear was of the Lord, and their fear being of the Lord, they were able to have great security. And here was Pharaoh pretending to be a God himself and pretending to be a God filled with insecurity. Pharaoh discovers that all the male children are continuing to multiply. And so he starts a state-sanctioned edict of infanticide, not unlike the abortion laws that we have in our our country. And he begins to, he, he makes it an edict of the Pharaoh that all of the male sons should be taken and thrown into the Nile. They believed that the Nile was a God himself and that he could determine their life and they could throw him in there and the, the river, the river, not the Pharaoh, but the river would decide the fate of the baby, which was almost certainly to be death. Except there was a, a mom and there was a sister that was more cunning and more courageous than the Pharaoh. And the Bible uses the word ark. It's translated as basket, but it's the exact same Hebrew word as the word in Genesis chapter 6 to describe Noah's ark. The only two times the word is used in all of the Bible. And it says that this mom builds this little ark, and she places her baby in that little ark, and she places it out in the reed of the Nile, technically within the edict of the king. 
And she would go and she would do her slave labor, but the older sister, she would hang out and she would watch. Too, too young to go and to work in the fields, but, but old enough to be able to care for a baby. And she would stay there and she would watch the baby and she would care for the baby. And the current would cover its cries. Until one day, the Pharaoh's daughter discovers the baby. And do you know, we know the name of that mom. Her name was was Jochebed, and we know the name of that big sister. Her name was Miriam, but we don't know the name of the Pharaoh. We don't know the name of the mightiest man in the world. We don't know the name of his replacement. Because you see, the boy that was saved was a man by the name of Moses. And Moses would serve as the servant of a king before whom Pharaoh himself would bow. A king who had made a covenant with his people that he would not forget. And so chapter 2 comes to a close with God, the great king, saying that he had remembered his covenant with his people. And that now he was going to take action to restore them and to bring them into the land of promise. So there's a very real sense in which the great exodus, the watermark of the Old Testament's redemption of God's people, is brought into being by faithful mothers of Israel who fear God more than they fear the king. So before Moses and before the plagues and before the Red Sea was parted, God initiates his great redemption through diaper-changing, staying up all night, ferociously protective moms and midwives. Oh, mom, this morning, don't let anyone diminish your value in the kingdom of God. Don't believe the lies that you are feeding your own mind. Don't believe the lies that you see parading on Facebook. In the kingdom of God, in the economy of God, great are you. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me now to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. We're going to read the first 12 verses together. And again, if you were maybe a late arrival, if you'll tune in to FM 87.9, you'll be able to hear through the radio. It says in chapter 3, verse 1, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb. That's the same as Sinai, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight while the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? 
He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. God has called you to do something. God has called you to do something. God has never saved a person to which he saved so that they might waste their lives doing nothing of any consequence. No, God calls every one of his children to a specific, exact, precise, and eternal work. That's what we see here in Moses' life. Moses is being called by God to do something great for God. But Moses has questions. Anytime that we are called by God to a great work and we are called out of ourselves and beyond ourselves, there's a protest that raises up in us, isn't there? There's questions that come to the forefront, questions that reveal our unbelief, questions that reveal our insecurity, questions that that we really just can't get a grip on. And so seeing that here in Moses, what we're going to see is that he has five questions. We're going to talk about two of them this week and three of them next week. But this is the same questions that we might ask. The same questions that we might ask when God calls us to do something. The first question that we see that Moses asks when God calls him to do this great work is, who am I? Who am I? Moses is alone in the wilderness. He's living a seemingly simple, obscure life, and he seems utterly content. And he's walking through the wilderness miles and miles from anything in the, uh, in the land of Horeb, when all of a sudden he walks and he sees over in the distance a bush that's on fire. And he must have stopped and watched it for a while because he watched it long enough to know that even though it was on fire, it, didn't get, it was never consumed. That it was burning, but it wouldn't, the flame would not go out and the bush was not diminished in the least. And so he must have been wondering if he was delusional or, or maybe if he had eaten bad Indian food or something. And so he begins to be drawn in and he's unsure exactly of what to think. And he, and he begins to, to walk closer when all of a sudden a voice proclaims out of the bush and says, Moses, Moses, and he freezes. Like someone who has mistakenly grabbed the handle of a hot pan, he realizes in an instant that he is in the presence of holiness. That's the purpose of the fire. That's what the fire represents. That's why Moses shields his eyes. That's why Moses has to remove his sandals because in an instant, seeing the fire, hearing the voice, he realizes that he is in the presence of a holy God, the God who is a consuming fire. See, it would be fire that would lead God's people through the wilderness. It would be fire that would give the law at Sinai. It would be fire that would burn the sacrifices at the tabernacle and offer them in the Holy of Holies. And in the New Covenant, it would be fire that would ignite the hearts of the apostles on the day of Pentecost when many would believe and many would hear the, the good news of Jesus Christ in a tongue that was native to them. See, fire purifies. Fire stands out. Fire is both an ally and a foe, keeping you warm or burning your house down. And here is the one before whom there is no one more pure. There is no one that stands out more than he is. The one for whom his children, he is the greatest friend and the greatest ally. But for his enemies, he is the greatest enemy and the greatest foe. And so he calls out to Moses to take his shoes off for he is on holy ground. You see, you don't just glide into the presence of a holy God. You don't just strut into the presence of a holy God. 
when you glimpse even the faintest degree of the holiness of God, you are immediately undone as Isaiah was in chapter 6 when he says, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Moses is here and he takes off his shoes in an act of of humility, taking essentially the, the posture of a slave, realizing and recognizing that he was in the presence of one who was far more holy, far more so- sovereign, far more transcendent than anyone that he had ever saved. But God had not come to Moses without having something to say. God came to Moses because he had a message for Moses. And the message was essentially twofold. First of all, first of all, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of your heritage. I am the God who made the covenant that you would be a blessing to all nations. I am the God that provided the sacrifice for Isaac. I am the God who wrestled with Jacob. I am the God that delivered you into Egypt. And I am the God that will deliver you out of Egypt. And the second layer of that was, and I am a God of steadfast love. I am a God of steadfast love covenant by the people of God had been largely forgotten at this time. They had moved on with their lives. They had been uh, infiltrated by false gods. They had seen the prosperity of Egypt and they had been drawn in. They had been then enslaved by the same Egyptians and they had been there certainly having only the oracles that they had had before. No written word, no, no written tradition, no, no certainty. They had, they had these, these oracles, but now they were being diluted by all of the oracles of Egypt. And so here they are having largely forgotten God himself. And God says, I have not forgotten you. You may have been, uh, per, you may have perverted your faith with false gods. You may have long been since drifting away from me, but my heart has never moved an inch. My heart has never moved a centimeter. No, no, no. I will act. I will deliver my people. I will bring them into the promised land. I will allow them to enjoy the fullness of my promise. No, God is faithful and God is determined. And God, through his faithfulness, had made the determination in eternity past that he would use Moses. He would use the stammering, stumbling, can't get out of his own way man that had been raised in the household of the Pharaoh himself to deliver his own slaves from the Pharaoh. And it wasn't Moses' decision. It wasn't for Moses to decide whether or not he would do what God had called him to do. It wasn't for Moses to decide whether or not he would be faithful to what God had called him to be faithful to. No, God had determined it. God had said it. God had willed it, and it would be. And so Moses responds with the same way that most of us would respond in a situation like that. If you've ever been called to something great, and you knew that it was something great, and you knew that it was something that was beyond you, and you knew that it was a call that was irrevocable, a call that God had placed that he would not remove, a call to adopt, a call to foster, a call to to start a ministry or to teach, a call to, to have family worship and to raise your children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, you receive this call, and immediately you look up to the Lord and you say with Moses, Who am I? Who am I? You see a call so great and you look in the mirror and you see a man so weak. So Moses looks back to God and he says, you must not really know me as well as you think you know me. You must not really understand exactly who I am because if you knew what a punk I actually am, if you knew how worthless I really am, if you knew how afraid I actually am, if you knew how incapable I actually am, you would find somebody better. Who am I? 
Who am I? And God says the same words to Moses that he says to us in that moment. But I will be with you. But I will be with you. Did you not hear me when I said I am the God who gave the call to Abraham? Did you not hear me when I said I was the God who miraculously provided the sacrifice for Isaac? Did you not hear me when I said I was the God who who wrestled with Jacob and allowed Jacob to prevail? Did you not hear me when I said I was the God that brought you out of Egypt and that I brought you into Egypt and now that I'm the God that's going to bring you out of Egypt? See, Moses wasn't the main character. And you're not the main character. God's call on your life is not about you. It's about who he is. It's about his character, his strength, his glory. Of course it's impossible for you to do what God has called you to do. But with God, all things are possible. But with God, all things are possible. If, if, if there was a single summary of the whole Bible, could we not say that the summary would be, but with God, all things are possible? But with God, even sinners can be saved? But with God, even sinners can be used? But with God, even those that are rebelling, rebelling against him and committing treason in his kingdom can be redeemed by that God and set apart and used for his mighty work? But God, but God, See, because of, he, of who he is, the good news of the gospel is, is it doesn't matter who you are. And it doesn't matter who you're not. It doesn't matter what you've done and it doesn't matter what you haven't done. It doesn't matter what you can do and it doesn't matter what you can't do. It's irrelevant. The question is not, who am I? The, the answer is, who is he? He is mighty. I wonder. I wonder this morning how many of us are rationalizing away the call of God on our life to do something great with the question of who am I? I wonder how many of us know that God is calling us forward to teach or calling us forward to start a a homeless shelter or calling us forward to go and minister to the orphan. I wonder how many of us God is calling to, to begin a Bible study in our home. How many of us God is calling to move overseas as a missionary and we think I can't People do, but I can't. That's not who I am. Who am I, oh Lord? And God is saying, God is saying, don't you realize how great I am? Don't you realize how mighty I am? Don't you realize how faithful I am? See, your faithfulness demonstrates what you believe about God, not what you believe about you. Your faithfulness or unfaithfulness demonstrates what you believe about God, not yourself. And that's what brings us to the next question. So he says, who am I? And then he pivots and he says, okay, well, if you're saying that it's about that you're going to be able to do all these things through me, then I've got another question. Who are you? Who are you? Look at Exodus 3, 13 through 15 with me now. It says, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now you have to understand, 
There had been 400 years in which they had not heard anything from God. It's this long a period of silence as we find from God in the Old Testament. And the oracles, as we had said before, had been infiltrated. And so when he says, I am the God of your fathers, that could mean a lot of things. Their fathers had worshipped false gods too. Their, their, their gods had, had uh, their, their fathers had found themselves given over to all of these, all of these perverted, man-made, wooden statues. And so it says, the God of, of your fathers, and, and Moses essentially said, well, which one are you? Which one are the gods? And God said, no, 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 no. You, you don't understand. I'm not that little wooden statue. I'm not that, that sun that rises in the morning. I, I'm not that river you see flowing through, through Egypt. I'm the one that's above all of that. I'm the one that put that there. I'm the one that raises that sun up. I'm the one who told the, that river exactly how wide it could be and how fast it could rush and how much water it would hold. You go and you tell them, not that I, it's just some God, it is the God. You tell them that I am who I am. You tell them that I am sent you. Like, whoa. What does that mean? I, this is exactly, if you've ever heard the name Yahweh used of God, this is where we get that. Yahweh means to be. And amazingly, I read this, I didn't even realize this, that we went, that the Jews went so long without pronouncing out loud the name Yahweh, we still aren't really actually sure that we're pronouncing it the right way. But this is the specific, personalized, covenant name of God. And so when he says, I am who I am, or you might translate it, I will be who I will be, or I will do what I will do, he is pointing us to the transcendence of God. That is, that God is not like us. That he is not like the gods that we invent. He is above us all. He is far beyond us all. He is self-existent. He is not derived from any foreign energy. He is not composed of any foreign resource. No, he is derived from an energy that comes from within within himself alone. He is self-sustaining, self-sufficient, and self-perpetuating. This is why Thomas Aquinas, the the great uh, Christian thinker of a thousand years ago, he said that, that God is the only being to be ontologically or logically necessary. That is, without I am, nothing is. Without I am, nothing is. You have no explanation for your origins or your purpose. You have no anchor point for logic or rationale. He is the creator of every atom. He is the designer of time. He is the engineer of the future. He is the architect of history. And so God already is anywhere or any time there will ever be. He is still in yesterday. He is here with us today, and he is already there with us tomorrow. I am. He is always present tense. He is always there. He is always able. He is always willing. He is always gracious. He is always merciful. He is I am. See, he's always been faithfulness, faithful, and his faithfulness is future-proof. That's the point to Moses, that his faithfulness is future-proof. That Moses is not plan B or plan C or plan D. Moses is not his B team. He's not his backups. He's not third string. Moses is plan A. And the promise is plan A. That God has not had to call an audible. He didn't call an audible in the garden. He didn't call an audible in Egypt. And he's not calling an audible right now. God is still on plan A. And his covenant is as secure right now as when he first made it. So he's telling Moses, I'm unsurprised by what's happened. I'm unsurprised by your reaction. 
I'm unsurprised about what's to come. I know, I already know that Pharaoh is going to have to be compelled by a mighty hand, a hand even mightier than him if he's going to let my people go. And so I, I will compel him. I I know, I know my people are slaves and they're impoverished and they don't have the supplies that they need to be able to to go and survive and sustain across the wilderness. And so I'm going to allow them to go to the houses of Egypt and plunder their own masters so that, that not only will they have enough, but they will now have excess. Because there is a king that is more famous than Pharaoh and there is a kingdom that is greater than the kingdom of Egypt and it is a king before whom Pharaoh himself will bow and declare him as glorious. See, two Pharaohs have died and we don't know their names, but Yahweh was and is and will always be. And this morning, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, if you have repented of your sin and placed the hope of your life in Jesus, then all of this applies to you. Because you know what Jesus said? Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine, and no one gets to the Father except through me. You see, in these two questions, who am I and who are you, we see shadows of the gospel that God has sent his son, and he has sent his son to save me so that now I look to God, I look to the I am, I look to the one who is transcendent, who has come for me and I say who am I who am I that my king would die for me who am I that my king would enlist me a sinner into his kingdom into his court into his household to carry forward his glory and his name and as I'm undone by the by the worthlessness and the wretchedness of my own life he comes and he reminds me of who he is is. He is a saving God. He is redeeming God. He is a coming king. And so now, so now we can come. We can come and we can find our place in his kingdom. No matter how disqualified we may seem, we can now do great things that he has called us to do because he has called us to live and to go not in our strength, not in our ability, not in our name, but in his. And with him, our future is secured. Let's pray together. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at nine o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.